Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Bonus episode, Dr. Sid Williams meets Dr. B.J. Palmer. Doctors of chiropractic and student initiates, welcome back for another episode. Today, we have a bonus episode that we're excited to share with our fellow listeners. Today, we're going to share the story of Dr. Sid Williams and when he first enrolled as a new student at the Palmer School of Chiropractic. And as today's title suggests, his thoughts on Dr. B.J. Palmer. For new students, Dr. Sid Williams was the founding president of Life University in Marietta, Georgia. Through his efforts, Dr. Williams would grow Life University into the largest chiropractic school in the world. His steadfast commitment to subluxation-based chiropractic and fighting for our profession as a distinct healing art separate from medical treatments and therapies earned him the title, the Defender of Chiropractic. Before enrolling at the Palmer School in 1953, Dr. Williams had earned an industrial management degree from the Engineering School of Georgia Tech. Once arriving to the Palmer School, Dr. Williams related that he had experienced a bit of a culture shock. The existing students were all talking about a, quote, one cause, one correction, one cure, end quote, principle that had made no sense to a young 23-year-old Sid. This slogan was B.J. Palmer's principle that meant subluxation is the cause of disease and that correction of that subluxation with the chiropractic adjustment would restore innate ability to cure the body of disease. This is a powerful statement, and to anyone entrenched in the medical model of disease, it can be quite a shock. After engaging with some of the student body, Sid was able to meet B.J. Palmer face to face. Sid described B.J. as a man who was on a mission to develop chiropractic and spread it to the world. B.J. saw himself as the torchbearer of chiropractic and fought his entire professional life to have chiropractic recognized as a legal healing art in the United States and abroad. Sid recalled that when BJ spoke, he always did from a place of authority, commanding not only the listener's attention, but also their respect, as nobody could talk chiropractic like B.J. Palmer did. His convictions, based upon decades of getting sick people well with chiropractic alone, preceded everything that B.J. did to develop our profession, from a logical theory and into a repeatable science designed to get sick people well. So, without further delay, here is the story of Dr. Sid Williams and his first encounter 
with Dr. B.J. Palmer. <clears throat> we had some real misgivings about what we'd gotten ourselves into when we finally arrived at Davenport. Imagine two 23-year-old conservative Southerners leaving the laid-back academic environment of Georgia Institute of Technology, where doctors were accepted and recognized PhDs to attend the, quote, Cairo School, end quote, out in Iowa. I can still remember my first impressions on arriving. Many of the students and recent grads were dressed in zoot suits, reed pleats, and wide-brimmed hats. The cafeteria walls and other vacant areas were covered with Albert Hubbard-style two-inch to two-foot epigrams and drawings. I wondered what a PHC was and met 18-month graduates with no previous education who were calling themselves doctors. I had already been told that the DC degree was considered spurious by the academic, medical, and insurance communities. What was I doing there in my gray pinstriped business suit? Vividly, I recall stopping at a service station in Rock Island, Illinois, prior to our crossing the Mississippi into Iowa, and asking the service attendant what the loud clanging noise was, and being told it was the chimes up at the BJ Cairo School. The attendant said, it's BJ's way of reminding everybody that he's up there. Dr. Nell and I looked at each other, wondering what it would be like up on Brady Hill. Later that afternoon, under the clock tower, I noticed a little man in a precisely trimmed Van Dyke mustache doing a continuous toggle recoil in front of his body. He toggled by holding his thumb with a jerking arm motion while continuing to walk in front of BJ's garden and the 15-foot bronze statue of D.D. Palmer, the founder. Separating the garden from the street was a five-foot red, white, and blue wall on which was printed in capital letters, the more you tell, the more you sell. I recall that in the men's restroom and the cafeteria, an entire wall contained the epigram, don't take yourself too damn seriously. At that time, I didn't know what they were talking about. It was a culture shock. Nevertheless, we were there because we had great admiration for the institution's leader, to whose philosophy we had decided to dedicate our lives. I was profoundly and significantly interested in chiropractic, particularly since the mainstream establishment, my world, said it wasn't so and that it couldn't be done. To these people, chiropractic was sheer quackery and chiropractors were charlatans and cultists. As I reflected on the ideals and beliefs that had been ingrained in me through my traditional collegiate experience, I still couldn't believe that I was at the fountainhead of a new order of understanding disease, disease and the causative factors. But I was inspired by being in the presence of B.J. Palmer, the man who was challenging the medical dictatorship, who was winning against the American Medical Association, and who had seen to it that chiropractic 
was licensed in 45 states. I recall thinking at the time, if chiropractic was licensed in 45 states and had the approval of the people, who did the AMA think it was to act as the obstructionists? It annoyed me then, as it annoys me now. Looking back, one thing that confused me were the chiropractors in the Palmer School and in the field who were constantly talking about an entity they refer to as the cause. To this day, I'm not sure whether it was their stupidity or mine, but I couldn't understand what they were talking about. Maybe it was their inability to translate it into a language that I could understand. I had had lots of experience with illness, sickness, and injury, but what cause were they talking about? It was baffling, because my medical friends from back home had assured me that disease was caused by bacteria and other pathogens and nothing else. Another roadblock to my early understanding was that you didn't need a differential diagnosis to accept a patient for care. Why? I was torn between my previous upbringing and a new culture yet to be recognized. The first BJ lecture we attended was at the BJ Palmer Chiropractic Research Clinic, the finest facility of its kind in the world. The clinic's appearance was modern, up-to-date, posh, with a good number of wealthy-looking patients waiting for their adjustments. It was March 1953, and BJ had just returned from his beach house in Sarasota, Florida. He was standing in the room looking at a huge pocket watch to make sure we started on time, and he closed the doors when the wall clock struck the hour. Woe be to the student who was late. <clears throat> BJ was standing by the piano that now sits in the BJ Palmer Museum in Sarasota, having been donated to us by Dr. Chandler Bend, Jr. of Michigan. According to B.J. Palmer lore, this same piano had been used by Maestro Paderewski for a concert at the Strand Theater in Davenport, Iowa. The first thing you noticed about B.J. was his deep, penetrating, blue eyes, which he demanded your attention. He had a lonely, forlorn look that made one wonder the kind of life he'd led. Another feature that, he, that one noticed immediately was his brown hair, which was, which was covered with a thick coat of dandruff. BJ didn't believe in washing his hair, so naturally I didn't wash mine for the next two years. When he began to speak, there was no warm-up or pussyfooting around. It was as if he were Moses himself. His voice had a sharp, crisp Midwestern tone and was very authoritative. And he spoke as if he were the one in authority, as if he had been given the torch and the message straight from the source. BJ spoke in highly critical terms of the medical association of the world. He was most upset because the American Medical Association had refused to recognize the new discovery 
that his father had given the world. He talked about the vision of the far, all of which I did not understand, but nevertheless I admired him because he was the leader. He had been on the front lines, and I was a person who knew what it was like to be faced with adversity and then to overcome it. Even though I didn't understand his vision, it didn't detract me from my admiration for him. I repeat, what can a 23-year-old person be expected to think of a world leader not having his experience or foresight and not having gone through the trials and tribulations that he had endured? Some of my classmates at the first lecture were turned off by B.J., They had closed their minds to any new thinking. Many of them remained BJ's critics throughout their stay at Palmer, and they had trouble being successful field doctors. I remember an epigram at Palmer College that said, One cause, one correction, one cure, in big letters, and I wanted to understand that. It was important to me. If chiropractic had discovered a new cause, and the people had accepted it by giving licensure to chiropractors in 45 states, then I wanted to be sure of this particular issue. How could they be so naive as to say there was one cause, one correction, one cure? BJ always seemed to, be, always seemed to talk from this basis. It seemed vague and mystical to me because I still had a lot of respect for the PhDs and MDs with whom I had been been associated. And they wouldn't lie. If anything scientific was, was to be known, I believed that they knew it all. Now, 40 years later, I recognize how ignorant I was at that time. I've learned how shabby, how wanting the medical establishment really is. I discovered that those once-respected MDs can lie and cheat with the best of them. Their specialty is using dirty, underhanded tactics to make chiropractic look bad. Just last week, the AMA was denied its final appeal in the Will case and was found guilty of continuing its illegal, restrictive practices. You can be sure that the AMA will seek to minimize the judgment and continue to attack us with all it's got. I remember well the slogan I used to chant in the early 1960s as we marched against the AMA in Louisiana, Ohio, Mississippi, and New York. It went, AMA, AMA, how many kids have your drugs killed today. My heart aches when I think of the number of sick people who will die because medical prejudice has kept them from obtaining chiropractic care. Dr. Werner of New York used to remind us that you and I, the chiropractors, are responsible for the condition the sick find themselves in today. Look at the billions of dollars that the world's medical associations, our medical opposition, have spent on research, and we still have no closer to discovering our fundamental underlying cause of disease 
disorder and dysfunction that they were then. By checking the medical texts, you will realize that the allopaths still don't allude to the subluxation and its impact on the body, although significant research and documentation are available on the existence of the subluxation and its profound impact. As a young man, I thought there would be no bias or prejudice against chiropractic from the scientific community. How wrong I was. How wrong a lot of people are today. I don't know at what point I began to understand what BJ was trying to tell us. It wasn't verbalized in a book. I didn't hear it in a specific lecture. It took me 22 months to find just a small part of the message, and it didn't come easily. When it came, it was as a thought flash. It came from within, as BJ had predicted. When the full impact of BJ's big idea hit me, I was more excited and more uplifted than I have ever been before. I felt I had full authority. I knew I was right. Uh, it was as if I'd entered a new age. I could see the light, the big idea, the one that was bigger than law, medicine, or religion, had hit home. If this idea could be reduced to clinical applications through spinal adjustments, there would be no end to how far Dr. Nell and I could go. BJ's message would lead, and we would follow. I look at it today through the eyes of the president of a college larger than the fountainhead. What a strong man BJ was in conviction, determination, consistency, and courage, so that chiropractic now is challenging the allopathic doctors for leadership. It remains to be seen who the guardians of public health are now and who the guardians will be in the future. BJ was quite a man in selling his point of view. When he came to Atlanta to confront the Georgia legislature in 1956, Dr. Nell and I sat in the audience. The legislators ridiculed us as if we were tradespeople, comparing us to carpenters and plumbers and degrading us, even though we were licensed. But BJ gave them his view of chiropractic and how it was bringing in a new era of understanding. He let them have both barrels. They were unmoved. However, when BJ published a story about that meeting, you could hardly recognize it. He mentioned nothing about the ridicule, the disagreements that were there, or the disrespect he encountered from the speakers. He referred to being received with great dignity and respect. I learned then what BJ meant when he said, sell the positive. The truth of the matter had nothing to do with it, but he sold the positive in spite of the embarrassment he went through at the Georgia House of Representatives. Before a sparse group of legislators and even sparser group of chiropractors. I think what shocked us the most when reading the story about the confrontation was that Dr. Nell and I could not recognize that we had been there. 
BJ certainly wasn't a humble, modest, loving person in everything that he did, but he was more right than wrong in trying to keep in trying to keep chiropractic as a separate and distinct discipline. His principles still stand. His emphasis is still correct. Although the circumstances have changed, if BJ were here today, I think he'd be with us, along with the International Chiropractic Association, the principled members of the American Chiropractic Association, and our stout-hearted Dynamic Essentials men and women. I wonder if BJ, who loved and knew music, ever thought about Sigmund Rongberg's rousing stout-hearted men that goes, give me some men who are stout-hearted men and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. That's what's happening. Wherever BJ is today, I think he knows and approves of our efforts. At Life College, we are continuing on the tradition of BJ Palmer and the tradition of chiropractic that will endure and last. Times are critical. A lot of our chiropractors treasure allopathic and medical acceptance more than they do the total recognition of chiropractic concepts. They crave recognition by the medical fraternity. Actually, just a small pat on the back is as many of them want. Their need for approval reminds me of an old New York proverb that says, when your competition says nice things about you, it's time to go home and cut prices. These pitiful ones will stop at little or nothing to enhance their inflated egos. If they were to have a serious vote today, I believe they would vote en masse to put into the chiropractic colleges a full medical curriculum like the one the osteopaths voted for in 1958, which essentially neutered the profession by seeing to it that students received full medical training from qualified medical practitioners. They adopted a medical standard of care and practice. The osteopathic profession is now presumed to have gone the way of the dodo bird. Chiropractors sooner or later must face the question, do we want to be doctors of chiropractic or do we wish to change the curriculum in order to become doctors of chiropractic medicine? For the bottom line, we should recall the famous words of Shakespeare's Prince Hamlet, to be or not to be, that is the question. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. This has been the Green Book Commentaries.